acute need or tenderness. Laura resembled his mother in no way. She had different habits, preferences, and talents. But his wife still somehow recalled Amy, in common sense, in pure spirit. Laura still teased him about their first date. He had confessed he might never marry at all, never find a woman the equal of his mother. Amy had died of ovarian cancer, hadn't even lived to hear Amelia, the daughter they had named for her, say her name. Ironically, in just two years' time, if the Amelia of today was not talking, she was sleeping. Honoring his mother, he still sometimes called Amelia Amy, especially when he was the one putting her into her bed. Elliot's mother was the one who, by offhand example, instructed him in the custom that husbands, not wives, were responsible for the construction of the wedding anniversary. This seemed only fair. He knew that Laura assumed a tightened share of the engineering of all the other holidays, getting up at 4 a.m. to wash and baste great birds, one year jollying her brother Stephen, late, when the girls were tiny and fuddled with sleep, into appearing at the doorway to their room in red padded plush and white rabbit fur. Even Annie, the eldest at 13, remained convinced she'd once glimpsed the real Santa. Celebrating their anniversary often was deferred until New Year's Eve, with school concerts, shopping, and the arrival of Laura's three siblings, Elliot's father, and sometimes his sister, all crowding the week before the holiday. Her sisters and brothers stayed with Miranda, in the capacious brownstone she'd occupied alone since their father's death, when Laura was only three. But Laura insisted everyone squeeze into her and Elliot's tiny salt box for a Christmas Eve feast of seafood and pasta. Laura made everything, from the pasta to the bouche du Noël, by hand, and her labors left her so drained she could barely nibble at the elaborate annual brunch Miranda had catered by the palatial palate on the following day. Elliot had a dozen photos of Laura asleep on the couch at Christmas dinner. One year, sometime soon, he often thought, he would protest. But he could not bear to interfere with the whispered traditions and sly confidences of the McDermott's at Christmas time, when even the slightly chilly elder sister, Suzanne, and her precocious little boy seemed to loosen up. Laura's childlike joy in her siblings was so much what he hoped his girl's relationship would someday be, he knew that it must be cherished. It was so different from the vaguely affectionate diffidence of his much younger sister, who taught drama at a vast Midwestern university. Oh, hello, Sarah would say uncertainly when he phoned her. What's up? What do you need? They fumbled at small talk. She sent the girls gift cards for bookstores at their birthdays. Sarah, his mother often said, was like their father. Resolute, a survivor, self-reliant. What does that make me? Elliot wondered at the time. Wimpy? Dependent? Kindly, his mother said. Noticing. Nothing to be ashamed of in a man. But he'd had his mother's example. How had Laura's siblings grown up so close? Laura said the four of them had intuited early on they must be in league against Miranda's invisible shield to become mother and father to one another or to wither. But even out of deference to the impending gathering of the clan, he did not want to put off this one anniversary, just on the off chance he would miss the big one so far. In the end, two weeks before Christmas, Elliot bought Laura tickets for Cirque du Soleil, 
their new show, Kidam, ending a two-week run at Suffolk Downs in Boston Center. Laura had been a gymnast, fighting her way on vault all the way to regionals through high school, when finally, and to her sorrow, she had grown to her full height. She and their middle daughter, Rory, who took gymnastics at the local YMCA, watched tapes of the fabulous previous Cirque shows, Alegria, their first favorite. When Elliot handed Laura the tickets, along with a pen-drawn cartoon voucher of the two of them chewing a single strand of spaghetti at their favorite hideout, a little Italy restaurant truly deserving of the name, just six tables, Laura, with her agile legs, jumped and clasped him about the waist like a monkey. It was a thrill to him, that. He got a kick out of having such an agile wife, who could still do cartwheels and backbends in middle age. You rascal, she cried. This is what I wanted more than anything else in the world. I've been reading about the performances every day and just longing to see one. But the tickets are so expensive. It's hardly Paris, Elliot joked, referring to the belated honeymoon they'd planned for the second summer. Or had it been the first? After their wedding, when he would have finished graduate school, both school and Europe were nixed, never to be revisited by Laura's tremulous announcement that there'd been a hitch and they were pregnant. Oh, Paris, Laura said. Paris is for the 20th anniversary, when the girls are big enough to stay with mother and take care of each other while being ignored beyond the basic necessities of life. That's six years from now. Annie will be in college. And this is like a little bit of Paris, Al. I'm so glad you got me this instead of some camisole that would just make me look fat and lie in the drawer forever. Elliot breathed easier. It was the 14th, after all. He would never forget again. Never. In the tent, Laura reached out in the dark to clutch his hand as the hula-hoop girl, ringed like an African goddess with circles of rainbow light, set first one, then three, then five circlets in motion about her hipless child's body at one point extending her legs straight in a standing split, a hoop gyrating around her pointed toe. Down ceiling-high cables floated masked phantoms, their blood-red robes falling away, the revealed athletes then flexing and extending their impossibly taut bodies, as if they were constructed of stuff other than human flesh, were instead structures of steel and ice, covered with human fabric. Over her protests, at intermission, Elliot bought Laura one of the shirts with the characteristic sunburst emblazoned in silver. It'll show every bulge, Elliot, Laura protested. You haven't got bulges, he told her, patting the modest, tender lap of flesh over her belt, which had replaced her concave contours only after she'd given birth to the girls. He grinned to himself at a bright momentary vision of the way his wife would look later, nude, or perhaps modeling only the tight-fitting T-shirt, ivory curve of thigh against pale blue sheets, gazing up at him from under her lids, the Princess Di parody she saved only for bed. At least it's stretchy, Laura told him, with a dubious pout. It holds a person in. It would have suited her, capped sleeves and nipped waist, he later decided. After a time, he would move the shirt still in its tissue, into his own underwear drawer. He would keep the raucous, wistful tape of the background music to Kidam in his car 
until it snapped one day while he was driving Rory to school. He would weep, not bothering to palm away the tears, while Rory stared straight ahead, clutching her book bag. As they left the stadium that night, pressed congenially thigh to thigh by the determined crowd, Elliot noticed simultaneously that it was 11.30 and that he was drunk, only a little, from the two beers quaffed at intermission on top of the wine they'd shared at dinner. Take a nap, Laura urged him. I feel it too, but I'm just tired. I can drive. She rummaged in her commodious bag, Amelia's detention slip, an open lipstick furred with cotton swab litter, and nuggets of stale gum. Damn, Laura griped. This was Elizabeth Arden. Mother got it for me. She located her janitor's key ring, its anchor a metal charm featuring a laminated photo of Rory's triumphal best-ever dismount from the beam. She kept searching. I'll get you another lipstick, Elliot, bleary, told her. I have to find some Tylenol. My eyes feel as though they're on fire from behind, said Laura. Too much rosin in the wine, Elliot offered. Gives your head. There, a couple of lipsticky red Tylenol. They better help. It really hurts, El, Laura told him. I think I have a migraine. Sit a moment, he told her. We don't have to be home any special time. I don't like to leave Annie. She's 13, Laura. You were babysitting half the neighborhood when you were 13. You bought a car with babysitting money, for God's sake. I did, she admitted, reclining her seat slightly. It was a quiet, ancient source of pride. Okay, a minute. Elliot awoke when Laura started the car. The parking lot at Suffolk Downs was empty, or nearly. He saw the hat-shaped blue and yellow tents billowing and knots of the performers gathered smoking, looking eerily misplaced, their elaborately painted gold and black almond eyes shockingly adult atop their adolescent bodies. Laura had told him many of them were formerly Olympic gymnasts or ballet dancers gifted at flexibility rather than the leap or the pirouette. She'd also told him that, in defiance of all logic, all dancers and gymnasts of merit smoked in order to try to stay slim and small. I feel better, his wife told him. It's as if it's just pressure now, not so much pain. Let's get home so I can lie down. I'm sorry, sweetie, he told her, as they entered the Sumner Tunnel, thick with Saturday night hordes. He felt himself drifting with the pause and accelerate, pause and lurch, until Laura, in real panic, woke him. Elliot, she said, the oil light is on. Snuffing, he told her, electrical glitch. The battery light is on now, Laura said sharply, sounding like her mother. Is that nothing also? No, that's shit, Elliot told her, abruptly sober and dry-mouthed sitting up in disgust as the car softly drifted to a complete stop and the lights dimmed, dimmed, and disappeared. Laura dived to depress the triangular red emergency flashers, but they logically also were dead. Rolling across her, Elliot flipped the hood switch to signal distress, but the horns of cars behind them still burst into a cacophony of frustration. Elliot inched along the damp tunnel wall to peer under the hood, what he saw signified as much to him as it would have had he been asked to perform surgery on a brain. Since he was a boy, gathered with his friends peering into their car's entrails, 
He could never decipher the engine's mystery, even when it was pointed out to him. Alternator connection or brake cable, they were all the same to him. He could fill the window washer tank and add oil, never quite sure he'd read the message of the dipstick as confidently as other men did. To start a car by crossing critical wires was a fantasy Elliot nurtured the way other men dreamed of playing rhythm guitar for Van Halen. In moments, a canine police unit passed them, and the officer promised in passing to send a wrecker. Astoundingly, shortly thereafter, they were linked to some kind of shoving vehicle driven by a swarthy man Laura described as resembling the troll under the bridge and shoved the quarter mile onto a verge of flat earth next to one of the elevators that ferried workers down into the big dig. The tunnel project that had made Boston a hell of dust and snarl traffic for what was promised to be three years and was now seven and counting. Despite cute, hopeful posters about the interesting things the excavations had turned up, prehistoric fish spines, colonial foundations, every single Bostonian except the fellow who owned the cranes was sick to the teeth of the project. Politicians had been threatened with recall, lawsuits filed, tourists headed for Cape Cod diverted to airports in Rhode Island. Frantically, Laura phoned home, and then squinting punched in their AAA road service and membership numbers as Elliot inspected the brightly lit construction shaft and chatted with the young police officer, whose tiresome duty was to guard the shaft overnight against prankish teenagers and curious drunks, who tended to take dives or demonstrate their ability to balance on railings. The girls are fine, she reported wistfully. The tow truck is about half an hour away. I think we'll freeze to death by then, don't you? I should have worn my long coat. Elliot noticed scythes of slate-colored flesh under each of Laura's eyes, as if she had applied her eyeshadow upside down. One of her eyes was alarmingly bloodshot. She worked too hard with her small design business, trifold brochures and the occasional state-sponsored pamphlet, never failing to booster every school activity and extracurricular interests the girls lit upon. Enthusiasms new each year, fragile as the lifespan of mayflies. But I'm not fine. I'm knocked out. I'm going to go lie down in the back, she said, until the tow truck comes. I feel bad, Al. I feel bad. My head feels funny, beyond pain. She worked too hard, Elliot told the young cop, whose name was, of course, Tony. His wife as well, Tony agreed with a sigh, offering Elliot an illicit Marlboro, which he accepted, the companionable and manly thing to do, even though Elliot had quit smoking seven years before.